Hello and welcome to A New and Ancient Story. This is a podcast, a series of conversations, interviews, and occasionally speeches dedicated to the transformation of self and society. The basic idea is that we are moving from a story of separation to a new story, new for the dominant culture at least, of interbeing. What that means will become apparent as you listen to this series. We explore things like technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education. I mean, pretty much everything that is undergoing a transition today as our old story nears collapse. If you want to engage these ideas more deeply, you can come to our website, charleseisenstein.net. Hello, everybody. Charles here, uh, this time with Joanna Harcourt-Smith, who I've known for quite a few years. And actually, I don't know that much about your biography or anything. I know that you were married to Timothy Leary and that you have the kind of outrageousness that one would expect from that. And yeah, Joanna is someone who's just like so incredibly full of life that you wonder what dynamo she's plugged into. And um, also Joanna has um, her own podcast, which is like one of the best podcasts out there uh, called Future Primitive. So we're kind of doing a joint podcast. Mine, when I sporadically do it, is called A New and Ancient Story. And so I'm kind of introducing Joanna, and now she's going to return the favor. Wonderful. Well, my friends who listen to Future Primitive, I'm here with Charles Eisenstein. And um, the first thing I want to say is that I love Charles. It's, uh, it's a pleasure for me to feel love for Charles. And uh, I don't know, uh, we met um, probably about a decade ago or something like that. And a treasured friend of mine, Hugh Weir, said, I've met this man and he's both very intelligent and kind. And of course, I'm very, very attracted by people who are intelligent and kind because I think that uh, the mix of those two things is what will create, is creating a new world. So um, one time I went to a workshop that was given by Charles. It was a, it was five days. It was quite a, quite a chunk of time. And um, it was beautiful because what happened is there were, I don't know, 12, 13, 15 people. And, uh, and during those days, we were, we were humanified, I would say. Our titles, our, our knowledge, our beliefs, many of them anyway, dropped off. And we were just in a cauldron of humans, a warm, bubbling, kind cauldron of humans. And um, I have to say, every time the people who were in that workshop and I see each other, we greet each other as family. Mm. And so this uh, this 
fascinates me because uh, that's what I want to uh, cultivate in life is the sense of family with all living beings. And uh, and that's what I feel with you, Charles. And uh, Well, thank you, Joanna. Yeah. Um, I have... Uh, I love you, too. <laughs> and... When you were speaking, I like I had a question coming up, which you, you said something about that we are building a new world, that it is happening. And I think that's meaningful coming from you because you were, you know, at the epicenter of the age of Aquarius, the new age, the, 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 the hippie revolution in the 60s, when everybody was saying that a new world is imminent that consciousness is shifting and that everything's going to be different and and we are revolutionizing the past and, and all this stuff. And then that was whatever, 1967, and you were in the thick of it. And now it's 2017. That's 50 years later. And looking around at the political, economic, ecological situation, it one could be excused for thinking that the age of Aquarius never came. And, and to hear you say that, yeah, it's happening. That's, that, that feels very hopeful to me. Do you want to, do you want to say why you feel so positive about it? Well, I need to say that I grew up in a family, wasn't really a family because people were not uh, relating to each other in sweet family values, we we were just a bunch of objects. We were related to as objects, uh, hopefully objects of at least physical beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, my uh, my people, the people I came into, the group I came into, had reached, I would say, the apex of the Industrial Revolution. In other words, my step-grandfather and my grandmother became billionaires because they were the people who were the most deeply invested in plastic at the time uh, when plastic became the commodity. Petrol became the commodity. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And the price they paid for being so so-called rich is that they had no values, no morals. In other words, they were the Jewish people who bought and sold Jews between governments and, uh, and so that uh, they were exempt from their Jewishness in terms of being uh, victims of the Holocaust. Hmm. What I'm saying is very, very intense uh, because I want to say that I came about in this world where people were totally objectified. This had been growing, of course. People were sold back and forth. Alliances were made. Women were objects through the ages. But I think that really the 40s and the 50s were the apex of that 
objectification. I, for some reason as a child, was devastated by that lack of warmth and that cult of money, power, and um, worship of resources of the earth. I couldn't bear it. And uh, I was very, very fortunate that my antenna kept searching for a way out of this uh, of this coldness, of this lack of morals, of this lack of values, hmm. of this using. And uh, yes, I was fortunate by a set of circumstances that uh, I would call um, grace. I mean, you have... knew that even to know that there was a way out is is remarkable. At that time and in those conditions. Well, I think that what what happened, you know, a lot of people are talking about uh, the fact that we're we're hitting bottom now in terms of like in um, in terms of addiction mm-hmm. to society as it was. But I I think that it was during the Second World War that society really really hit bottom and many of us of my generation began to look for a way out from this uh, this conformity that allowed people to feel totally separated and so as you know the music started to play mm-hmm. may it always be like that when the music starts to play and travel the world, people wake up, and so there was all this fabulous music coming out, there were people expressing freedom and joy in the way they were they were dressing, there was color, there was people, my generation, wanting to live after these terrible wars, wanting to connect, mm-hmm. and so... In a way, a lot of us were, were swept up in this in this wave, and really, what was the tip of this wave? What was the concept that was flying around? It was that there may be a different kind of loving, a kind of loving that was not born of duty a kind of loving that was not about sacrifice or uh, hierarchy, maybe a kind of loving that uh, that could feel real and especially a kind of loving that could be creative and that could be developed. And that has remained. It really has remained. And it's a strong seed. There are a lot of us who are growing. This is what I believe to answer your question. There are a lot of us who are growing love as it has never been grown before. Our old ways falling falling apart, the ways of our parents accepted, forgiven, but yet this legacy of love is being amplified. 
Mm-hmm. And, and by love, I mean the recognition of each other as family, the recognition mm-hmm. of the earth as us. Yes. I uh, was making the uh, question to provoke you to say something like this. I completely agree. And, <laughs> and yeah, because really what is love but the expansion of yourself to include others? And so now expanding to include the people and the beings that had been excluded from the circle of self. Now we're letting them in into the, uh, into the family. And, and I think that's what's going on underneath all of the, the political horror show that underneath it, you know, there's there, this, this consciousness, this love is expanding. And I almost kind of, like, there's a lot of hate on the internet. Um, but even when I go into comments sections and read the hateful comments, there's part of me that's like, I don't really believe you. Like, I think maybe you're trapped in a narrative that is giving expression to your pain, but I don't really believe you that you actually hate these people. It's, or, or sometimes it's like, well, maybe that's your political brand or your identity. But I, I remember this uh, Russell Brand show one time. He's this British comedian, you know, and he um, had some people from the Westboro Baptist Church on his show. And they like came with, you know, signs, you, you know, God hates fags or whatever, Russell Brand, you know, fag lover or something like that, like really like hateful placards they carried in but by the end of the show like he had them laughing too at kind of at their silliness and it was like they weren't even holding on to it that tightly what they wanted is something else now i'm not like i don't want to minimize the the danger or the the violence that could that can erupt from these hateful narratives but maybe it's just maybe i'm just naive But we had, like, we have this sign outside of our house that we put up after the election. It says, Trump lover, Clinton lover, none of the above -er." Black, white, red, brown, or some other color. Each woman is a sister here and every man a brother. Let us put our judgments down and love one another. And and so we have this sign out there, right? This hand-painted sign. And, like, the black people in the neighborhood love it, you know? But then, like... A few months ago, Stella comes home and she sees two skinheads outside of our front yard, like looking at the sign and having a conversation. And she pulls into the driveway and she's like afraid, you know, like she's there with our four-year-old, you know, what are they going to do or say or whatever. But they were actually like, yeah, great sign. And I just feel like sometimes even like even amidst the seeming impossibility it also sometimes feels that it's just this close. Like we could just snap our fingers and wake up out of the hate and judgment. And, and that is enforced by the system that we live in and by the narratives that surround us, but it's not our consciousness anymore. And I'm not just talking about the uh, consciousness elite, Mm -hmm. but like many, many, many people As you said, I, uh, 
I wrote down that I wanted to share with you this silly little story. Hmm. Uh, yesterday I was in a shop and uh, this man walked in and uh, I said, hello. And he turned around and he said, did you say hello to me? And I said, yes, of course. And he said, oh, that means so much to me, especially in these times. And it, what passed, that's the love I'm talking about. I mean, what passed between us in the silence that followed where we just saw each other was so beautiful that I, well, nothing more. I just walked out of that shop and I felt so hopeful and happy and, and, and I felt really devastated by, um, by what's happened in the last few days. Mm -hmm. But yet I want to share with you that just three or four months ago, in part from being European, but also from being, from having to learn or was learned, I, I, I really was not aware of uh, the the history um, of um, of race in this country, mm -hmm. and I'm sure there are lots of people like me. And in the last three or four months, it's just been opening up. So in a way, isn't that isn't that isn't that an opening? Yeah. The first step of healing, I think, is for 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 what was invisible to be made visible. Mm -hmm. And racial healing in this country, I don't think, can happen just by people trying to be nice. I think that that or intolerant and stuff. I think that that the healing on the social level comes through the understanding of what it's like to be you, what it's like to be the other, and you can't understand what it's like to be a black person. If you don't understand some of the history, which has given birth to the social conditions and the cultural conditions, like it's otherwise certain things just seem incomprehensible. Like why would, you know, black people distrust white people so much? Like these things, if you don't understand the history, then it's hard to understand certain aspects of our, uh, of our society today. And, and so like these, I mean, not to mention the Native Americans, you know, which I don't know what, actually what I'm supposed to call them, but but like this hidden history that if we don't know it and we therefore don't understand the situation that people's behavior comes from, then we blame the people and not the situation. But when we under, understand the situation, then we no longer blame the people because we understand, yeah, man, if I were in that situation, I'd probably be like that too. And, and so this, the, the whole racial thing is, like, I think you're right. I think it's coming to the surface. And my uh, hope is that instead of leading to a new cycle of hatred, where the, you know, everybody hates the white supremacists and they hate everybody else back, that it can lead to an even bigger expansion of the circle. And we should ask, for example, like, you know, what is it? 
like to be a white supremacist? Like, where are they coming from? What is their situation? Are they just bad? Or are they playing a role in this drama that has been set up um, by, you know, vast cultural forces? And what is it like to be to be a Trump voter? You know, what is it like to be to be I mean, anybody left or right? And then even like to put that question out there and to create situations where people think in that way, then usually create much more creative responses to the situation can unfold and, and, and you can address the situation rather than just fighting the enemy. And that's, that's something I've been really, um, I don't know, like I'm writing this book on climate change actually, mm-hmm. but in a way my mind has already moved forward onto, um, I mean, I guess you could call it bringing compassion into politics or empathy. And it's just what you said. It's just the expansion of love. I have an idea which is, you know, I, I, for a long time, until I was um, 38 years old, uh, I practiced hatred. I practiced Hmm. hatred. It was the only... It was the only power I thought I had. I had, I always had a good heart, but um, it was a very wounded heart from abuse, from child abuse and woman abuse. And so the only strength that I I thought I had was the strength to hate. Mm-hmm. And I had perfected a gaze that I thought was the most hateful gaze the energy in my being could possibly give people if for a moment I felt wounded by them. And as it's a vicious circle, uh, because I was hated, hating because I was a victim, then I um, was a victim a lot and I hated a lot. And so I think that to to look at the hatred within ourselves, because I can't, I mean, there are probably very few people who haven't felt hatred in their life. And to take a slow and deep look at what that feels like, what that comes from, mm-hmm. and, and basically what I need from you so that I don't feel hate anymore. What what can you give me, my brother, so I don't have to feel this hatred as my only power? What happened when you were 38? What what made you? Uh, uh, I I met I met I searched and I met somebody who spoke to me, this is exactly, this is the turning point. I I met somebody um, who um, talked to me with detached compassion. So that means it was somebody who had had the same experience as me, so they knew everything or most of what I felt, 
but yet they didn't take it personally and they didn't, they weren't afraid of my, my hate. Mm. They felt compassion for me. They, I'm, I'm, I'm visiting it right now. They, they were not sorry for me. They felt compassion for me with the humility that comes from knowing that you know that suffering that creates that hatred. And it broke me like, like, I think it's the roadrunner or whatever that creature is in the, in the, uh, in the funny pictures that <laughs> the whole being cracks to pieces. It cracked me. It cracked me. I, uh, I got naked. I, I, I was willing to appear naked without my stories. Mm-hmm. And, and in that moment I was able to believe that perhaps, uh, naked I could get up and, and just take the next step without all that identity that defensiveness that uh. but this this takes me to a question for you somewhere in your text you wrote the story that surrounds me so going back to this hatred and this this pain that people are expressing how can we free ourselves from the so- story that surrounds us, sort of like we're, we're, we're in, in the water and the water is our story and it's all around us. How can yeah. we free ourselves? Um, I mean, I think you kind of just gave the answer in, with your story. Because uh, I'm, I'm just appreciating the um, vibration of the story you told and kind of um, wanting to universalize it. So you actually did not free yourself from the state of hatred, but you received liberation because somebody saw you and saw you and not you as the story about yourself, but really saw through that and loved you anyway and transmitted that to you. And, and by seeing you, and maybe I'm, you can tell me if I'm, if this is accurate, but by seeing you, um, into your soul for who you truly were, they created an invitation for you to be that. So I wonder if, and I'm thinking about, you know, translating this into, uh, like into a social political level. But what if the answer is this is not something that we can do for ourselves? This is not the kind of spirituality where through your hard efforts you win liberation, but it is something that comes as a gift that, that we can then pass on to others. Because when we know love, by being loved, on a deeper level than before, 
then we're able to love others in that way. And so maybe it's about, um, I don't know, I'm just coming back to to the same point I was making before, you know, about how do we heal like the deep divisions in our society. So it's not like, you know, it's not like some of us are healing the rest of us, but all of us have received a certain amount of trauma in this society that a lot of it's not even recognized as trauma, like the, the trauma of being you know, locked in a classroom or the trauma of being taken away from the ties that you're developing repeatedly again and again when your family moves or just being in a world of strangers. I mean, there's so many kind of unrecognized traumas that that generate all kinds of pain that we don't know how to integrate and that therefore magnetize to them stories um, of victimhood and entitlement and blame and hatred. So we're, we're all kind of in the same boat in that regard. And also we've all received at least a little bit of love. Some people only a tiny, tiny, tiny speck. But, but as the consciousness evolves on this planet, perhaps it's becoming more and more available and really our job is to stand in that and pass it on and create that invitation that was created for you anytime that we have the opportunity. And as we circulate it more, the opportunities seem to become more and more common. And yeah, that's, that's what I have at the moment for that. And so can I ask you another question? Yes, please. Well, okay, so you had this experience that shattered you and allowed you to walk naked in the world. And then, you know, then you're back in the world, which was still a uh, hurting world. And so what did you do with it? Like, what, like, how did you integrate it? Did you, like, was it like a, like this transformational experience and you were, always different afterwards or did you kind of go back and forth or and then like what did you start doing with your life when you had that revelation well um, the words that this person actually said to me and um, see there are, there's the mystery of the words the person the moment the words that this person said to me were, who do you think you are? Mm -hmm. And you spoke about entitlement, and, and I tried to answer Joanna Harcourt Smith. But it's when he looked at me and he said, there's nothing left of that. Mm. That it really, it really, really came through me. So that's what I meant by, by naked. In that moment, I accepted that really there was nothing left of that. Mm -hmm. And 
one day, perhaps uh, a year later, and I'm making a long story short, and I'm making a bit of a, it's a true story, but uh, I'm shortening it a lot, maybe a year later, I in turn ran into somebody who was in absolute despair. Mm -hmm. So, just like before I had the power of hatred, now I had the power of the seed that this person had planted in me. I knew what it felt like to receive that, that power of being understood and being cared for and feeling another person's compassion. I, I knew that now. And so maybe a year later, I saw a person who was in the same kind of despair. And I got up and I, I went to this person and, uh, and I told them that I, I knew what they were feeling and that I understood part of their pain. And I saw in that moment that I was being useful. Mm -hmm. And then in that moment of feeling useful to another human being, instead of feeling like a beautiful object, in that moment that I felt useful, uh, my whole life became useful. It was, mm -hmm. it was absolutely extraordinary. It was, uh, it was more of a birth than, than being born. It was, okay, this life has meaning. Uh, one person to another, one at a time, we can, really tell each other that we understand the pain and the joy that each other feels. Mm -hmm. And in those moments, everything is worth it. And so I continue to practice that. And the more I practice that, the more people practice with me. And the more people related to me in my suffering and in my joy and in my stupidity and uh, in my my mistakes and my successes i mean we're talking here about um, about needing each other about about what you talked about in uh, in your first book the age of reunion mm -hmm. yeah quite simple really i mean people everybody needs to be useful to feel that they're useful and that feeling um you know when, when like i mean in my in my work if, if sometimes i get into this place where i'm like oh you know i'm just going out and standing on stages and being smart you know and who cares and and, and like my energy starts to dissipate if I'm not like frequently reminded that it's being, that I'm being useful because especially as a writer, like it's hard to tell if um, I'm actually being useful. But then, you know, when someone comes up to me or writes me or something and describes the impact that something I've said or written has had on them, then it kind of reassures me. I'm like, okay, I'm, uh, I'm doing the right thing here. And it's, so it's not just about 
because I've thought about, well, you know, why do I care what people think, quote unquote, um, why don't I just follow the joy? But the joy is not something that happens in my separate self. That, you know, that, that, that I, I take joy from a relationship to the world and the relationship of being useful, of being aligned with this, this beautiful future that I see as possible. That, that's where the joy is for me. And, and I think everybody in a way is, is, is the same. You know, if anybody who's doing something in their lives that doesn't feel useful is going to be in a state of despair. It might be muted despair. Totally. It might be compensated for by a high enough salary or other um, bribes. Um, but it's going to be, and I, and I think actually more and more people are experiencing that despair as the livelihoods that the system offers but I think, yeah, I think that despair is spreading. Oh, oh, saying, yeah. Sorry to interrupt you, Charles, but I, I think I, I caught a fish here because I keep thinking about certain of these people who voted for Trump, and I think about the misery they're in because, let's say, they have no job or they have no, they have not had a raise or. Uh, the government is not taking care of them properly. And so perhaps the, the thing is they don't feel useful because right. this thing but, but even if they have a job, useful. see, a lot of them, you know, a lot of the Trump voters were not, you know, unemployed or working class people. A lot of them were, were are doing quite well in the terms that we accept as successful. Like they might... They might, they might not be an employee. They might be a tax accountant, you know, making $110,000 a year and thinking that they should be happy, but still feeling the despair. And I think that, I mean, if you look at suicide statistics or depression, anxiety, like all of these psychological, psychological conditions are, you can only call it an epidemic. And it's not only the destitute and the cast off that are depressed and anxious and killing themselves. It's throughout all strata of society. And I think that, like what I was just going to say was that as the livelihoods offered by the system are farther and farther out of alignment with what the world really needs, more and more people are going to feel that they're not being useful. Right. They're going to feel this despair. Even if they have a story that says, oh, this is useful. You, you know, it's important to do tax accounting or important to, like deep down on the soul level, we're like, ah, it's not supposed to be this way. You know, it's not supposed to be this way and I'm contributing to it and it's not supposed to be this way and I'm, I, I wasn't put here on earth to do this. And, and so in a way, like the rising levels of depression and anxiety are kind of a, 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 a positive sign that we are, um, that our consciousness is no longer aligning with the structures. So how, how can we help transmit the real useful? The, uh, like I was reading the story this morning in your blog about the, the Zen, uh, the Zen master who has been called to 
become the teacher of the emperor. And the mm-hmm. first time he's called, he doesn't go. And a year later, he's called again, and, uh, and he goes. And he explains that the first time he felt too much excitement. You were speaking about that in terms of your interview with Oprah. Right. Anyway, this then master felt too much excitement, and he knew that in this excitement there was something that he wanted, or the way I understand it was something he wanted from the other, from the emperor. But the second time he felt equal, the emperor could be his student, and he didn't feel a, a sense of hierarchy. That's mm-hmm. the way I understood it. Felt equal. Well, somehow I'm relating this to when I go uh, on stage and I speak to people, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of people who come up and say, oh, that was wonderful, that was amazing, or whatever. And, and I feel a kind of excitement that it's excitement. It's, it's not really joy. The, right. The small joy that the man yesterday that I said hello to, that that small joy feels like real joy to me. Yes, yes. I'm not talking about people saying that was amazing. Yeah, so like when I'm talking, yeah, when I was talking about what, you know, the feedback that I get that that lets me know that I'm being useful, it's definitely not oh, you're an amazing speaker, you're an amazing writer. It's the stories that someone might say, yeah, I was in a state of despair. And then I read such and such, and I realized that I'm not crazy after all. Like that's, Or, or it could just be like a look that someone gives me, and there's tears in their eyes or something like yeah. that. And it doesn't... And what that emperor and Zen master story was, was about is that it doesn't matter if that person is the president of the United States, you know, or some important person. And I'm going to think, okay, well, I'm being really useful now because an important person with a big platform is, and lots of power is finally turning on to these ideas. So I must be really important. No, like that's, that's the wrong metric. We can't guide by what the old story says is important. So it's, yeah, it's exactly like what you're talking about. The moments the moment that you described in the store. That's the navigation system. How, how can we how how can we pass on the joy of this small useful? How can we pass that on to the accountant who's making a hundred and ten thousand dollars? How how can we can we have an epidemic of small useful that brings joy. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess just by doing our part. Um, I think most people. I mean, for me, it's there's a there's a point where someone is ready to receive something new ready to, I mean, you talked about hitting bottom, like in the, in the fifties, mm-hmm. there was, there was kind of a cultural hitting bottom, maybe that prepared people to be broken open to, that prepared people to, to be asked, who are you? 
no, you're not that. If someone hasn't gone through maybe a process of disillusionment and uh, a growing despair, their story of self still works for them. They can still hold it together. Then maybe there's nothing you can do. Maybe all you can do is be the welcoming committee uh, or the the conductor on the the river, you know, who who greets those who are ready to ready to to enter a different story, a different self. I I I really hesitate to say, okay, here's the formula, you know. It, it, it always makes, whenever I go there, I sound preachy to myself, even. Sure. And, and it's sure. just like something, I think this is something that we, in, we innately know how to do in a thousand creative ways as we fall more in love with the world. And as we, it's not just the, the sentiment of love, but it's also the understanding that love motivates. Love motivates the desire to understand. So without the understanding, then we might do things that like kind of are good-hearted, but that don't reach a very deep level. Like we might pick up the litter in the park instead of, um, you know, not knowing that it just ends up in the landfill and ends up going into the ocean anyway or something like that. Like, so understanding enables us to act with greater wisdom and precision. So I'm not like, like I'm not advocating like some retreat from the mind into the heart, but rather it's more of a motivating and animating of the mind with the love that is awakened in the heart. And that's so pleasurable. I just want to broadcast that you know, maybe, maybe taking that path for me when I remember it's because it's so much more pleasurable than hate. <sighs> yeah. And, and, and I want to add here that I have to be, uh, I, I don't have to be, but I want to be honest. My, my blossoming out of this shell this hard shell of defense has had everything to do with the fact that for me, for my particular personality and makeup, I um, I have not had a drink in 33 years. Hmm. And I have allowed myself to have certain entheogenic experiences after about uh, 12 years of total sobriety, I introduced entheogenic journeys once a year, maybe once every two years. And for me, for my own, uh, for my own incarnation and soul, this has been very, um, very heart and mind opening. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that these medicines came into the matrix at the moments that they were needed. 
when, I mean, it's another one of these, these things that comes from the outside that showed us that the reality that we were inhabiting is much smaller than actual reality. And in a way, like, sometimes I think of them, um, the advent of LSD, for example, um, from who knows where, like, it's kind of discovered by random almost, and, and the <laughs> advent of traditional plant medicines from outside the dominant culture. So again, like coming from the outside, it's almost like these were these emergency interventions that were introduced because we were not going to make it. Like we were too stuck in the story. We needed a little bit of a nudge. And so I think that, that I don't know, like sometimes I think that today they might be less necessary because the, thanks to the psychedelic age, the, um, the, the reality, the old story of reality is much more fragile and much more porous and, and not so like all consuming, all dominating. Like back in the fifties, like, only a, a, a extraordinary visionary could see outside of it. Most people, maybe on a deep soul level, thought there might be something outside of it, but but there but there was no um, or not much of an alternative narrative to feed that knowing. And so the psychedelic revolution was necessary. And I don't want to. I'm not like just saying they're not necessary now or something, or that they're not useful for a lot of people. I think that they probably are. Um, they, I mean. Back in the 80s, they were very, or what was that, late 80s, early 90s. Um, they had a profound influence on me as well. Um, so, yeah, thank you for for bringing that in. And the alcohol part also, um, just as, I mean, this isn't news to anybody listening, that it helps um, dull the pain that might come from not being useful or that might come from carrying so much unresolved trauma and it lets you like feel good for a moment you know what i mean and in a way like yeah. that's that's a medicine too like it allows you at least to survive <laughs> for a while until it stops working well i had an extraordinary experience actually when um when i had the serious dental surgery three weeks ago mm-hmm. in terms of uh, of sobriety. Um, of course, I was given all these opiates mm-hmm. and um, uh, it was even recommended uh, that I, um, I take edible uh, cannabis mm-hmm. and um, it was a test of uh, it was a test of honesty that uh, I noticed after two or three days that I I didn't really need the the opiates. Did I like them? I loved them. I I have to say right now that there's a hummingbird uh, floating right at the window. Hmm. So just to come back, uh, did I like the opiates? I loved them. I will not um, deny that, especially the one that seems to be causing so much harm to people called uh, OxyContin. Mm-hmm. 
And, um, but what I found, which was extraordinary, was that I loved being with myself the way I am. I'm not recommending that people not take uh, painkillers for pain. I'm just recommending the rigorous honesty of whether we need it or not. Mm-hmm. And what I discovered through practicing that honesty is that I love being with myself so much and that has developed through 30 years. It's a developing process that I'm not interested in taking drugs, medical or other, because, because I, I love, I, I love me the way I am. Mm-hmm. And that was an extraordinary experience. Yeah. That reminds me of a, of a story I just heard from a, a month ago. A woman told me, um, a story about her daughter who, her daughter was, I think, 10 years old, maybe, maybe, no, maybe even younger, maybe eight. And she was diagnosed with um, an inoperable brain tumor cancer. And, you know, they were, they were like, well, you know, we can give you chemo. It'll maybe extend your life a few months. And she's like, well, will it make it go away? And they said, no. And so she said, I don't want the chemo then. And so her mother took her home, and there's other parts of the story too. But but she was, um, and there was like a nurse who came and and lived at the house, um, like a rotation of nurses to help care for her. And she was often appeared at least to be in in in. I mean, theoretically, she was supposed to have been in horrible pain, and she. So everyone was expecting her to be in great pain, but her mother had like learned this healing technique, like that her hands would just like be put in the right spot in her body, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, the part that, that I was thinking of though was when one of the nurses gave her some opioid painkillers because she, you know, was theoretically in a lot of pain and she was like talking to beings that weren't there and she thought she must be in distress. The girl was talking to angels all the time, actually. Mm-hmm. And so she gave her these painkillers. And then the next day, um, she, the girl asked her mother, said, what, what did they give that? To, what, what did they give me? And the mother said, oh, they were just some painkillers. And the daughter said, promise me that you will never let them give that to me again. Because <sighs> apparently it shut off this channel of communication she had with another world. So the mother promised. And um, then the girl died a few months later, as expected. And then the mother began to communicate with the angels, too. So, I, you know, there are people who do not take painkillers. Even I had a dental experience last year, and um, I did allow them to give me Novocaine um, when they... When, when the dentist had to dig a uh, root tip out of my mandible. Um, and then after that experience, I was like, it's like I hadn't fully felt the procedure or something. Um, 
so when I went back to, uh, I don't know, it didn't really heal right, and so they had to, like, you know, um, scrape some things off and sew up the gum, and so I had that part of, I said, I don't, I don't want any painkillers this time, because I really want to feel it all, you know. So I was in that dentist chair <laughs> for the procedure, and just like, you know, um, being there with the pain, and then after after it was over, I just my whole body started shaking for at least five or ten minutes. I was just shaking and shaking and shaking, mm-hmm. and after that, I was fine. Like I was, it was like it had never happened. It was like all the trauma had been shaken out of my body. Whereas the first time when I had the Novocaine, uh, it was, I it felt like maybe I hadn't wasn't able to integrate it or something because my on some level I didn't know what had happened. I didn't know what was hurting or what what the like the trauma was disconnected from pain. And I think that maybe something similar happens on the political level too, on the on our on you know in our society that all of this pain on an individual and collective level is disconnected from its source. We're hurting and we don't know why we're hurting. And so we we cycle through an endless variety of solutions that cannot be directed at the real pain because we don't know what the source of the pain is because it's disconnected from the symptom. And I wonder, maybe this kind of circles back to the beginning of our conversation, you know, that that um, the hidden has to come to the surface and the unacknowledged connections be- between things and the context um has to become visible in order for real healing to happen, in order for us not to require an endless succession of painkillers of various kinds. The the distractions, I mean, even like hate rhetoric is a kind of a painkiller. You know, here you have, I mean, I'm imagining, you know, like some some white guy, you know, and he's he's has, like all human beings do, a desire to be magnificently expressed in the world in service of something that he believes in. And he feels kind of useless, you know, and then a white supremacist narrative comes along that makes him all of a sudden important and all of a sudden part of some grand cause. And and so, like, that narrative is itself like an opioid. It's kind of a painkiller that... that um, is a response to his pain, but not a, a healing, not a cure for the pain. It's not. It doesn't actually meet the wound. And and yeah, I guess I could go on about that. But I'm seeing kind of a parallel between um, the personal and the social level and the political. There was uh, there was an episode. Um where the same man that was uh, that was filmed saying um, uh, screaming against Jews uh, was then interviewed after the event happened, and he was crying. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw that. No. And he was crying because. He was saying that uh, uh, him and his people had been misunderstood, and um, they uh, 
they didn't re get recognized for what they were, and, uh, and it was just so amazing because hmm. I recognized the. I was looking at these tears, and I was thinking, uh, this man is crying his anger. This man feels incredibly sorry for himself. Mm -hmm. And this man feels that his act of belonging has not been accepted. That just what you were saying, that, that the most important part in all that is his act of belonging with this, with this group of people is not being recognized. Mm -hmm. right. So again, I'm, I, I want to go back with you for a moment on the, the, the small, the relationship between the small act of, the small act of useful and the feeling of belonging. Mm -hmm. <sighs> spreading, spreading that story, spreading the vibration of the small useful and uh, that turns into the big belonging. Mm -hmm. You know, Well, one thing that I also want to mention is that I, I just imagine people like saying, oh, you know, there's Charles giving a free pass to white supremacists and haters. But it's not about free passes. It's about actually understanding where it's coming from. And from that understanding, we respond. And we respond more effectively than we do from a delusion about who these people are and why they're doing it. And I don't want to, you know, simplify it and say that, like the, the picture you just painted, you know, of this man crying and wanting to belong. I don't want to simplify it and say that that's, you know, always what's behind it. But it's one thing. And when we become curious about what it's like to be the other, then we discover more of, of um, what, what are the unmet needs, what are the wounds that drive hate. We understand their situation, and then we can address, address it on a deeper level. And so you mentioned belonging, which is, I think, related to being useful because it's our common participation in something that transcends all of us, that makes us feel useful, or that's one of the things that makes that makes us feel useful. It's, it's not, for, for most people, maybe it's not enough to just be in service to your immediate family and friends, um, because we're, we're not just familial beings, you know, we're also social beings and global beings, and that's another kind of belonging that um, is a source of meaning in life and something that we need to embrace. And, and to embrace it, I think we need um, some kind of narrative to give it shape, you know, some kind of answer to the question, why are we here and where are we going? 
um, we need a yeah like a, a narrative that or even a drama you could say that assigns roles in the drama and helps us make sense of life and like we kind of don't have that today you know there's 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 not a compelling overarching narrative for humanity uh, which is why people are susceptible to fascistic narratives because but I think one is emerging I think that the you know humanity united in service of healing humanity and healing the planet in service of healing not necessarily the healers but in service of planetary healing I think that is starting to penetrate our consciousness to answer why are we here and what do I belong to I don't want to come to um, the end of this conversation um, which we're having great pleasure in, in, in having this conversation and it's time to come to a close but I don't want to come to a close without saying what I feel and think really and um, as an elder I, I, I want to put out this call I mean it is time right now to get up go out hold hands with other people stop everything we're doing and make our presence as brothers and sisters and human families known I've been I mean I in a way like lots what they they do in the eastern countries they all go out on the street and they stay on the street with each other until the the particular government that is in charge uh, has to give up mm-hmm. and I call on people to absolutely don't stay home don't accept get up go out and change things because it's true that expressing ourselves together in a powerful way we can change everything yes well I was about to ask you uh, as an elder what what uh, message do you want to give us but maybe that was it I guess I might have a question though okay see so much like we're, we're in a place now where so much of what is offered to us as a quote action is actually part of the hate machine or it's um, a diversion sometimes from from the real issue and and it it absorbs so much of people's political energy that there's none left for the um, for the the crises that are not making the headlines like the ones that make the headlines tend to be the ones that are re- that are uh, unthreatening to the holders of power you know like like I mean right now in the in liberal media like eight out of ten headlines seem to be about 
Charlottesville and white supremacy and hate crimes, hate speech, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, like the uh, authorities are totally happy to be granted even more power so that they can effectively crush hate groups. It's not going to disturb capitalism. It's not going to dis not going to change the the system of exploitation of natural so-called resources. It's not going to uh, mitigate the imperialist pillage of the planet. I mean, it's not that disturbing to the foundations of the status quo. And but that's where, like, you know, 80% of the media attention and everyone's political action is going toward. So I'm just wondering, like, when you say, like, get out into the streets and, like, let's actually start doing this. Um, how do you, I mean, I guess I'm saying, what kind of action are you talking about? You see, uh, that, was the, that was the problem of the situation in 1968 when we were in the streets of Paris. Mm -hmm. And um, we all went out on the streets of Paris, and we managed to stop the government. We managed to stop everything. And um, it was called the, the 68 Revolution in France. Yeah, I know yeah. about it, yeah. And uh, same for our much younger. And um, we had no idea how to replace it. Right how to replace what we have stopped. And and I have to admit that. The, the only way, again, because personally, uh, I believe in my own experience, the only way I know uh, how to stop it was, like, for instance, in, um, in the last couple of years, I have experienced the... Um, the absolute terror of having no money to buy food at the grocery store. Okay, I could yeah. be growing food, but in the situation I'm in, I can't. Right. Uh, and when I relaxed from that fear and I asked for help, people gave me so much food <laughs> that I had to be careful not to not to have it um, go bad. Yes. So I, I don't know. It's it, it. The only way I know is is to ask for help and for it to go out in in small circles, further and further out, and to just just stop everything else mm -hmm. that 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 we're doing that creates. Well, as you say in one of your blogs, we need a revolution in means not just a revolution to an end. Right. So, it's both. I ha I don't know. I really don't know. But I do know that uh, when we share resources, there's enough. There seems to be enough. Yes. Well, I would love to talk to you for many more hours. And <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, someday we will. Yes. Yeah. Thank um, you for the thank you for the joy of being with you, Charles. Yeah, likewise. Um, and I'm gonna 
probably be in Santa Fe in a couple months, so maybe we can even get together in person. I would like that. Yeah. Okay. Okay, well, this has been a possibly joint podcast of A New and Ancient Story and Future Primitive. And gosh, I would never even got to, I wanted to even, I wanted to ask you, like, why do you call it Future Primitive and stuff like that? But I'm sure when people go check it out, they will learn. I have pages of questions to ask yeah. you. Okay, well, maybe we should do it again sometime. Yeah, let's do it again because I want to hear about Tamara and what you experienced being on your brother's farm and yeah. lots of things about the earth. Yeah. Okay, yeah. well, well, we'll see. Maybe maybe our listeners will have us back by popular demand and we'll do another one soon. That's good. Okay. Okay, dear. So good Thank to be you. with you. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been a new and ancient story with your host, Charles Eisenstein. I offer this podcast in the spirit of the gift, by which I mean that I don't withhold premium content for a price or put up paywalls or do affiliate marketing or have advertising or anything like that. Instead, I rely on supporters like you. If you would like to support it, you can subscribe at charleseisenstein.net for a small monthly amount, or you can subscribe for free as well. Either way, you get the same content, everything's the same, and you'll be notified every time a new podcast comes out. Also on the site, you can find archived episodes along with everything else that I produce, essays, books, videos, online courses. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll be with you again next time.